0: turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus 10 will be there just very briefly. Then we'll look at chapter 14 and then we'll get back to chapter 11 and work our way through the main text for our evening. But we want to do some introductory work as well, so we'll start in chapter 10. So tonight we come to one of those portions of scripture which challenges our firm belief in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And I know you all believe that, but you don't have to preach, don't eat owls or bats, (laughs) don't eat mice or rats. You don't have to preach Leviticus 13 that commands that any sort of skin disease or breakout should be examined by a priest, no matter where it is on your body. I don't know if that's worse for the people or for the priest. I suppose the lowest ranking priest got stuck with skin disease examination duty. In Ezekiel, I'm sorry, in Leviticus 13 and 14, we get 116 verses on skin diseases, boils, itches, swelling, and eruptions. But it gets even better. Leviticus 15, a whole chapter in the Bible about bodily discharges. I can't even make myself say it, and I'm going to say it about 100 times tonight, so I'm just getting you used to it. Leviticus 15 will never be our scripture reading on Sunday morning. (laughs) And yet there are lessons to be learned, because all scripture is inspired by God. It is useful for our instruction. The basic theme of Leviticus as a whole is that we, as God's people, are to be set apart. And specifically to this particular context, and we'll we'll apply it to our context in a bit, God's chosen people of Israel are to be set apart. And not just by saying we're set apart. They didn't just say we're different. There were specific, incredibly specific ways in which they were set apart. They were different. They were to show every nation all around them how big God is, how glorious God is. And so... As we have gone through Leviticus, every message has some connection to that set-apartness, that holiness. And Tonight, we're going to examine holiness and purity. Holiness and purity. So my plan for tonight, in somewhat Bible study style, is to accomplish three things. First of all, I want to explain some introductory information just to give you a sense of the emphasis of these chapters. Give you some kind of groundwork, a framework to understand Leviticus 11 through 15 in particular. So we'll explain, then we'll examine the areas of life emphasized in the text. We'll walk through these texts in in kind of highlight fashion. And then we'll extract. We'll extract what is the main idea, the main lesson of these uncomfortable chapters, as well as some other applications. Now, I did this on purpose. These chapters so deal with the human condition And with those things normally reserved for discussions in your doctor's office, that I thought I would design tonight's plan around a doctor's visit, explain, examine, and extract. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Well, first, I want to explain some introductory thoughts, give you a sense of what's important in these chapters and really some important spiritual concepts, all the while remembering that the lesson for us as New Covenant believers in Christ is not that we're under these laws, not that we're under any variation of them, but we will receive a key lesson at the end of our time tonight. I think that we'll draw this all together. But the spiritual principles are always the same. Cover to cover in the Bible, certain spiritual principles never change. So let me give you a few introductory thoughts. The first introductory thought has to do with the language of chapters 11 through 15. The language of 11 through 15. Look back with me first at Leviticus 10 just for a moment. And this is a verse that in uh, verse 10 of chapter 10. This is our guide to Leviticus 11 through 15. Leviticus 10 verse 10 says you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. That's our guide to these four chapters. Four Hebrew words appear in this verse which then dominate in chapters 11 through 15. Holy, and that we've said before means to be set apart, means to be different. We have the word, the Hebrew word for common. Now, I include this as a conceptual word. The actual word doesn't appear in chapters 11 through 15, but it's a it's a massively implied concept because chapters 11 through 15 deal with things that are holy with the clear implication that there are other things that are common, that are not holy. Then you have the word unclean or impure. It can be translated either way, unclean or impure, and then you have clean and pure. Two of the words speak of that which is desirable, holy and clean or pure, and two of those words speak of that which is undesirable, common and unclean or impure, so I want to help us with a couple of distinctions, though, because it's, it's not easy to grasp, and so I want to give you a few different angles from which to think about this. Holy and clean or pure, they're not exactly synonymous. They are both the positive words, but they're not exactly the same. For example, God himself is called holy many, many times in Scripture, but with one debatable exception, he's never called pure. Because to call God pure would imply that he attained the state of purity from having been impure at one time. There's no verse that says, be pure for I, the Lord your God, am pure. Another distinction, common and unclean or impure aren't exactly synonymous either. Something that is common, such as a person or a thing, can also be clean and pure or unclean and impure. It can be either one. And hopefully this will make sense as we go along. As a matter of fact, it's debated as to whether the opposite of holy is common or is the opposite of holy unclean. I think the best answer is yes, all of the above. One scholar explains it this way. Listen carefully. This is, this is genius. While holiness had its opposite in the common, it encountered opposition in the presence of impurity. And so they, they're opposite but different. So let's boil this down. Suffice to say, in this first idea about language, that which is holy cannot be used for a common purpose. You can't take the tabernacle curtain and make a tent out of it to go camping. You can't take something that's holy and make it common, nor can you make something common suddenly be used for a holy purpose. You can't just go grab a guy off the street and say, hey, we're missing a priest today, you come serve today. There had to be a way to become holy. And so that which is holy cannot be approached by anything or anyone that is unclean. And so we see these, these grades, so to speak, these uh, progressions of holiness all the way down to uncleanness. And this will make more sense as we go. Let me give you a second introductory thought. And this is similar, but I think will be helpful to you. Impurity or uncleanness is not necessarily the same as sinfulness. Sometimes it's just something is impure because it's impure. Doesn't mean it's necessarily sinful, but sinfulness does always produce impurity. And so it's sort of a a, a one-way door. For example in the sacrificial section of chapters 1 through 7, we often see the phrase, quote, the priest shall make atonement. And it's always followed up by something to the effect of he or she or they shall be forgiven, meaning that sin was present and had to be dealt with, had to be forgiven. But in these chapters concerning purity and impurity, when the the phrase occurs, the priest shall make atonement, very often it says, Not he shall be forgiven, it says he shall be clean. That there's a difference. It's not necessarily that sin happened, it's just that we needed to be clean. I think a good way to put this would be, is it sinful for you to come to church without having showered for a week? Not technically, no. But you do want to be clean before coming to church. Let me give you a third concept that hopefully will put all this together for you. Let me give you the relationship between the holy, the common, the clean, and the unclean. Let's see if we can kind of tie this up into an easier uh, package to understand. Nothing which is holy can ever come into contact with that which is unclean. This would incur condemnation. And this, of course, is reflected in the very character of God. God is holy. He will never be in contact with that which is unclean. That is the very problem of our salvation, which salvation solves. We are unclean. God is holy. God must take us through a process to make us like himself so that we can be with him. And that is the goal. Holiness is the goal, to be fully and utterly set apart and right before God. That which is common, like a person, we would be considered common, can either be clean or unclean, but for the common to become holy, it must first become clean. Now, you might say, "What is this clean you speak of?" Well, how do you get something clean? You wash it, right? And so, you see many ritual washings in the Israelite system of living. I give you an example in the chapters dealing with skin diseases, generally called uh, generically called rather leprosy. It really includes any sort of skin ailment. Look with me now to chapter 14. I think this will begin to make more sense. A man who goes through, has some sort of skin ailment, goes through a process. First, the leprous man is unclean. He's out of the camp. And look with me at chapter 14, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp. And the priest shall look. Then, if the, leper, the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live, clean birds, and cedar wood and scarlet yarn, and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop, and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water, and he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into, come into the camp and live outside his tent seven days. And on the seventh day, he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair And then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and he shall be clean. So what is he now? He's clean. He's as clean as you can be. He's shaved off everything that you can shave off, but he's not yet holy. Not fully back in fellowship with God. The rest of this section describes a further sacrificial process that now involves sin offerings, burnt offerings, and guilt offerings because he may be clean, but he's not holy yet. And so the common, the man, goes from unclean to clean to holy. You see that progression? And there is a a parallel in the New Testament. We've said this before. That in salvation, the lost person goes through, Titus 3, 5, the washing of regeneration, he becomes clean, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, he becomes holy. Now, there isn't any time in between those two things, but the pattern continues. We are made clean, we are washed, and then we are renewed in the Holy Spirit, and this is the work of God, not the work of man. So that's just some, some explanations, some introductory ideas for you, and I think this will make more sense as we go through. Let's get to the exam. Let's examine the areas of life presented in these chapters. And I want the emphasis I want to have is that this is so embedded in our real life, and so I want to present this in terms of someone's house. And we'll use modern terms. The Israelites were currently living in tents, but eventually they would have houses, But most of their houses would be fairly simple structures. I want to use a sanctified imagination and talk about houses we're familiar with. So first, let's talk about the kitchen and dining room. The kitchen and dining room. And now we're in chapter 11. This is the heart of the dietary code of Israel. Chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Now, 2 Timothy 3.16, notwithstanding, I don't think it would be a good use of our time to read the entire chapter, so let me just break it down for you. Verses 1 through 8 addresses all the land animals. Verses 1 through 3, what is permitted to eat, animals with a parted hoof and choose the cud. Basically, all those in the cow family, if we want to be uh, specific. Verses 4 through 8, those not permitted to eat. Any land animal which has one of those qualities but not the other cannot be eaten. So there's no camel burgers at all, no rock badger sliders, and no bacon. Those are the land animals. Verses 9 through 12 addresses all seafood. Verse 9, those things that are permitted to eat, it's really simple. Anything with fins and scales. You could eat that. Verses 10 through 12, everything else is not permitted. Anything without fins or scales, so red lobster is out of business. And then verses 13 through 23, you have uh, the addressing of potential flying food, we could call it. Verses 13 through 19 lists all the outlawed birds. Fear not, Thanksgiving is still intact. The turkey is still on the menu, but no raven raviolis or stork stew. Can't have that. And then verses 20 through 23, all winged insects, except those with jointed legs uh, over their feet, are off limits. So grasshoppers and crickets are on the appetizer list. And then you have this extensive section from verse 24 all the way through verse 40, which goes into all kinds of detail about uncleanness, which is transmitted by contact with the dead or, or unclean animals. And so it's not just that you couldn't eat those things, it's that you couldn't even touch them. Otherwise, you were unclean. And so you had to go through whatever the ceremony that was prescribed to become clean again. And finally, verses 41 through 44 generally outlaws most bugs, snakes, anything that, quote, swarms on the ground. Look near the end of the chapter. This is the rationale for the dietary laws in verse 44. This is the reason For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now you notice that the dietary restrictions appeal only or, or pertain only to meat, rather. Only to meat. So no child can find a place that said thou shall not eat salad. It's still there. Um, and why is that? Genesis 129 was God's edict and it's still in effect behold I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in it in its fruit you shall have them for food now the big question you're probably hoping I will answer is why why this particular list why are some animals clean and some are unclean Well, it's not that God likes clean animals and doesn't like the unclean animals. He made provision on Noah's Ark for both, and so he saved both. Various theories have been put forth about these divisions. Uh, One is called the appearance theory, that animals which look repulsive shouldn't be eaten for dinner. Now, that doesn't really make sense because some of the unpermitted animals are much more beautiful than some of the permitted animals. If we're judging on pure beauty, I'd rather take an eagle over a goat any day. And you can't eat a rabbit. They're cute. So the appearance theory doesn't really hold water. Some use the, what's called the theology theory, that animals associated with pagan religions are taboo for Israel. The problem is, is that every animal is associated with pagan religions, so that doesn't really help us. The most popular theory is sometimes called the hygienic theory, that some animals are eliminated as more likely carriers of disease. It's kind of difficult to prove as a consistent pattern, but there is no doubt that the rules listed in Leviticus 11 contributed to hygienic practices. For example, Orthodox Jews wouldn't handle dead rodents. They washed their hands a lot. They washed all their things in the kitchen a lot, long before scientists discovered microbes, germs, and bacteria. So those are just a few of the theories put forward. But the fact is, there's only one reason listed in the Bible. That reason is be holy for I am holy. And if you're going to be holy, obey the Lord. If the Lord says you cannot eat a rock badger, then you obey. And he's not necessarily obligated to explain why. I want to point something out to you. It was almost impossible to avoid uncleanness in the kitchen or dining room, as we might say. Look back with me at verse 29. I just want to show you how difficult it would be to avoid uncleanness. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground, the mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. I grew up in the desert. We stepped on lizards all the time. That was just normal. Verse 32, anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it's an article of wood or a garment or skin or sack or any article that's used for any purpose. It must be put into water, it shall be unclean until the evening, then it shall be clean. If any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean, and you shall break it. Any food in it that, should, that could be eaten on which water comes shall be unclean. You ever wonder why in ancient Israel there's so many broken pots? Ah, the lizard fell in it. <sighs> it was so difficult to maintain cleanness let's move on to another metaphorical room of the house we'll call this one the birthing room and nursery the birthing room and nursery beginning in chapter 12 it's only in recent times that babies were routinely born anywhere except at home so we'll designate a birthing room what is the birthing room it's wherever mom is when it's time to give birth that becomes the birthing room chapter 12 is very easily summarized it's a short chapter if a woman gives birth to a boy. She is unclean for seven days. It doesn't mean she's sinful. It just means she's unclean. She's unclean for seven days, and on the eighth day, the boy was to be circumcised. For the next 33 days, 40 days total, she was not to touch anything holy. She was not to come to the sanctuary while her body recovered from childbirth, including the postnatal blood flow. And by the way, it wasn't giving birth that made her unclean. It was the postnatal blood flow. It wasn't the act of giving birth. There's no indictment on marital intimacy. There's no indictment on birth. Those are commanded by God, and they're normal. If a woman gave birth to a girl, she was unclean for 14 days, double the time for a boy, and was not to touch anything holy for the next 66 days, so 80 days total. Then she was to get ready to live a normal life again. Verse 6 of chapter 12. When the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. You recall that after Jesus was born, in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, we read, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, meaning, Mary and Joseph couldn't afford a lamb. They were bringing their modest means, which means we know also, by the way, that Jesus was 41 days old when they brought him to the temple. Now, feminists get all upset that the mother is impure and unclean for twice as long with a girl as with a boy. A, I didn't write the Bible, and B, there's actually some good information behind this. What was happening in daily life as a result of being unclean. Well, here's what God was actually providing. She and the baby are essentially sheltered. They, they, they can't go out. They can't do a lot of things. They're kept away from normal society during the period of uncleanness. The text doesn't give a clear explanation, but the result is that for baby girls, both mom and daughter remain protected and in a sheltered environment for twice as long. And there are some Jewish theologians who believe that this was an act of honor to give more protection to a baby girl because it was up to the baby girls to give birth to the next generation. And so it was, it was seen by even ancient Jews as an act of mercy to be kind of kept out of society. Wouldn't you like to just get off the merry-go-round for 80 days? That's what they got to do. Well, if uncleanness was difficult to avoid in the kitchen and dining room, it was impossible to avoid in the birthing room and the nursery. We've been in the kitchen, dining room, birthing room, and nursery. Let's move on to the bathroom. Never fear, we're just using the mirror in the bathroom. That's it. Because it's in the mirror that you look and see what's happening to your skin. The older you get, you know what this is like. You look in the mirror and go, oh, great, what's that? There's something new that has appeared And it's just, you kind of dread it. Leviticus gives substantial attention to skin conditions of all types. And once again, this will likely not make the cut for Sunday morning service scripture reading. But these two chapters speak of leprosy. And as a reminder, it refers to any number of skin conditions up to and including our modern version of leprosy, which is Hansen's disease. Chapter 13 is completely devoted to the diagnosis of a skin condition. The affected person is to be brought to the priest for examination. And I'll leave it to you to read the particulars of all the diagnostic criteria. But the chapter deals with your skin, with your hair, with your scalp, quarantine procedures, and even what to do with the infected garments and clothing. And listen, this is a severe, severe situation. Look with me near the end of the chapter. Chapter 13, verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, what does it mean to cover his upper lip? A little interesting side note here. Uh, it means to put a cloth covering over your mouth. What do the people do today when they don't want to spread germs? It's the same thing. But this was very serious. Any skin condition, leprosy all the way down to anything else, completely cut you off from society, cut you off from worship, cut you off from fellowship. Then you get to chapter 14, and it deals with cleansing and with further diagnosis. The first 32 verses deal with the ritual for cleansing and rehabilitation once the disease is gone. Then you get 20 more verses devoted just to the cleansing of the houses in which the person with the disease had lived. The stones in the wall were determined, if they were determined to have traces of the disease, they were to be ripped out of the wall and thrown outside the city. The plaster on the walls was to be scraped off and thrown outside the city. And if disease broke out in that house again, the house was to be torn apart and every single piece taken outside the city to what they called the waste places. Listen, hazmat units have nothing on these guys. They were thorough in the way they cleansed the home. The healed leper was to be reintroduced into society with a complex three-step process. We already read the first step. Chapter 14, 1 through 8 was a ritual to recognize that disease had been cleansed. By the way, the the priest wasn't functioning as a healer or a doctor at all. He was simply observing what the Lord had done or had not done. He was observing the sovereignty of God. We've already read verse 9. This is the second part, uh, the second step. There was another ceremony on the seventh day in which he uh, shaves off all his hair from his head, his beard, his eyebrows. But then there's a third ceremony on the eighth day, verse 10, and this deals with now the restoration of religious fellowship through sacrifices, the moving from unclean to clean to holy once again. So the question that I ask and that you may ask and that many have asked for centuries now, why so much space devoted to skin disease? What are the spiritual implications of these long chapters? God never does anything by accident. God wasn't saying, you know, there's two chapters I just don't know what to do with. I think I'll fill it up with skin diseases. There's a reason. Some have felt that the skin diseases, leprosy, were the result of sin. There are clear cases in the Bible, such as Miriam in Numbers 12, Gehazi in 2 Kings 5, but here in the context of fellowship with God, in the context of that fellowship being dependent on holiness and cleanness, it seems that the most likely message is that leprosy isn't necessarily caused by sin, but leprosy is like sin. It's like sin. Did you notice what is done with the, with the house that has some any sort of infection on the stones? The stones are ripped out and they're thrown away. And they're, they're separated. That which is unclean is separated from that which is clean. And it is like sin. Leprosy is like sin and that it keeps people from full fellowship with God. They're outside the camp until they're made clean. It keeps people from full fellowship with God's people. And it's it's progressive. It's pervasive. It's loathsome. It's disgusting. And it literally impacts every area of your life. And so to our analogy of looking in the mirror in the bathroom, if you saw a pervasive skin condition, there were massive consequences which were extremely hard and very painful beyond just the condition itself. And that's the way sin is, isn't it? Sin doesn't just affect you. It doesn't just hurt you. It hurts others around you. And there are often consequences attached to sin which last long after you've repented. And long after you've turned away. And so it isn't entirely unhealthy to treat sin like you would treat leprosy, to be careful and to rip it out and to get rid of it. What did Jesus say, if your hand offends, cut it off? Well, we've been in the kitchen, in the dining room, we've been in the birthing room and nursery in the bathroom. Let's move on to the master bedroom. And let me tell you, if I didn't believe in 2 Timothy 3.16, I would find any excuse to skip chapter 15. But we believe, and so we're going to work through it. The heading at the top of this chapter in your Bible probably says something like laws about bodily discharges. This basically covers every possibility of anything your body wants to get rid of. And so we'll just keep keep it at that level. These could be divided into two categories in this chapter, abnormal and normal. I won't make a list or a suggestion whatsoever. None of them are considered inherently sinful. They're just simply rendering you unclean. And then the abnormal and the normal discharges are divided into men and women. And so basically, if we were to outline chapter 15, it goes like this. Verses 1 through 15 concern abnormal discharges from men Verses 16 through 18 concern normal discharges from men in the context of marriage and marital intimacy. Verses 19 through 24 concern normal discharges from women in the context of her normal cycle. And verses 25 through 33 concern abnormal discharges from women, such as excessive bleeding. Now, a major difference ought to be noted here. If you read through chapter 15, for normal discharges, which are a norm of par- normal part of life, simply bathing is sufficient to remove the impurity. That's it. That's all that had to happen. But for a- abnormal discharges, offering of sacrifices was required. And so you say, well, what did we learn from this? Let me tell you one thing I learned. Even what we think is private, even what we consider personal even the most personal intimate moments between the man and the woman is impacted and part of their faith in the Lord. There is no area of life that our faith doesn't intersect with and doesn't impact that their faith in the one true God extended all the way to the master bedroom. No area of life is to be left untouched. Our faith is all-encompassing. And by the way, this helped keep, for the faithful Jewish family, this helped keep everything in perspective because marital intimacy rendered you unclean for the rest of the day, if the family was headed to the sanctuary for Sabbath, then the couple that was faithful would likely focus on their faith and not on each other. They didn't, they didn't provide for themselves idols even of their own marriage. They stayed true to the one true living God. And it's not that their intimacy was sinful. It's just that it, it didn't allow them to fully focus on the Lord when they needed to. Well... Like the kitchen and dining room was difficult to avoid uncleanness, the birthing room and nursery it was impossible to avoid uncleanness. In the bathroom, it's impossible to avoid uncleanness. In the master bedroom, it was also impossible to avoid uncleanness. In fact, the entire spiritual point of this chapter is found in verse 31. Look with me at chapter 15, verse 31. Again. Thus, you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. It says that worship and approaching God is special. We don't do this with casualness. It's not the same as the rest of life. It's different. And by the way, just to put this right into our realm here, that's the principle, which is the main reason that drives why, here at Grace, we ask you not to bring in your coffee or your donuts or your active cell phones into our worship service. This is set-apart time. This is different time. This is holy time. It's sacred time. Well, we've explained and we examined. Let's extract, let's extract the main lesson and some other applications as well. Did you notice that almost all the categories of clean and unclean in in those five chapters that we just kind of hopped through here, they're basically non-moral issues. With the exception of the dietary laws of chapter 11, the purity laws all address events in life which are normal or unavoidable. Childbirth, diseases, marital intimacy, bodily discharges, all the things. That's the list of things I never want to talk about again as long as I live. But they're all normal And so what is the main lesson when you read Leviticus 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15? The lesson is, this is the whole point of tonight, life makes you unclean. Life makes you unclean. You can't live daily life without coming into contact with that which is unclean. You can't do it, no matter what you do. If you are unclean, you cannot be made holy. You can't be made holy on your own. You can't be made holy If that's the case, then you can't fellowship with God, who is holy. Uncleanness reflects the fact that you are a sinful human being living in a sinful body on a sinful world. And despite the best of your intentions, you will be tainted. You will be contaminated. And because of this main lesson that life makes you unclean, it's absolutely ridiculous to make any pretense of self-righteous purity before God. That I could somehow be pure before God. Any of the good works that I do. Well, when I appear before God, I'll, I'll tell him the good things I did. Are you kidding? You can't even wash your hands enough for God. It, you, you go to the restroom. You're unclean. You have intimate time with your spouse. You're unclean. You touch things. You step on a lizard. You're unclean. You cannot appear before God. You see how ridiculous it makes self-righteousness? You're you're so unclean that you can't even figure out what holiness would be if you tried. You must be cleansed. You must be cleansed of sin completely and fully. You must be like the leper of Matthew 8 who said to Jesus, And behold, the leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me what? Clean. The next verse tells us that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean, and immediately his leprosy left him. According to the law, if you touch a leper, what does that make you? makes you unclean, not with Jesus. When a normal person touches a leper, both of them are now unclean, but when Jesus touches a leper, the leper becomes clean. That is the effect of touching our Savior. And so I tried to put myself in the shoes of a normal Israelite, and and the sense I kept coming to was frustration. That the Israelite, I believe, was meant to experience a sense of frustration that no matter what they did, they were constantly coming into contact with that which made them unclean. So what were they to do? How did they deal with this just constant spiritual contamination that they can't get away from? Well, the Lord provided for them a temporal means to be holy, to bypass all of the difficulties of uncleanness, to enter into full other fellowship with their covenant God and king. And it's chapter 16, the day of atonement. Oh, and now you get to the good news. 11 through 15 just depresses you. But the good news is found in chapter 16, that the high priest first was to have his sins atoned for, his family's sins atoned for. He's a sinner as well. He can't come before God without his sin being dealt with. And then he's to represent the people and offer a sacrifice for them. This is the heart of the sacrificial system, clearly a forerunner of the permanent atonement, which would be offered by Christ. But here's the heart of the sacrificial system. Chapter 16, verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and the front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel." Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. Did you see that? All the uncleannesses. The day of atonement, you start fresh. And everything that you couldn't cover. Man, I had eight skin diseases this year. Stepped on a lizard. Accidentally ate a rock badger. But it's all done. It's all clean. But then we get to an interesting little detail. A live goat comes into the ceremony. Known famously as the scapegoat. Verse 20. And when he has made an end of atonement for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. One is killed as a sin offering. The other is has the sins of Israel symbolically laid on his head and is let, let go out into the wilderness. How did they choose the goats? Look back at verse 8. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, it's more commonly known in English translations as the scapegoat, but you notice that word didn't appear here. English Standard Version doesn't say that one goat is a scapegoat. It says that that one goat is for Azazel, is sent to Azazel. What does this mean? Well, the translation in the ESV reflects a really more recent popular view that Azazel represents either the wilderness or is actually a demonic power. say, what? I don't see that in the text. Well, let me explain. Leviticus 17.7 prohibits Israel from offering sacrifices in the wilderness to what is called goat demons. Isaiah 34.14 speaks of the wilderness of Edom after God's judgment as being filled with wild goats. Same word from Leviticus 17, goat demons. Second Chronicles 11.15 speaks of the worship of goat idols or goat demons, same Hebrew word in the wilderness. In other words, there's a pattern in the Old Testament of the wilderness being a, a haunt of unclean spirits, particularly what the Old Testament calls goat demons. And also, although not in Scripture, the apocryphal intertestamental book of First Enoch identifies Azazel as the leader of the demons in Genesis 6 who wanted the daughters of men. Well, that sounds interesting, and that is the translation that the ESV gives us. But there is a problem because that creates all kinds of difficulties. Because the primary dif- primary difficulty is now it appears that this live goat is sent out to the wilderness to appease a demon. We just said in Leviticus 17 that that's not allowed. That's prohibited. So, should we continue to understand this second goat as a scapegoat? Yes, you should. Why? Because that's what the word Azazel means. Azazel is made up of two Semitic words the Hebrew word for goat and the Aramaic word for go. So, this is literally the go away goat. Tyndale's 1530 English translation came up with a brand new word, coined a word, and rendered it scapegoat. And then it got shortened to scapegoat. So, no, the goat wasn't sent to Azazel. Azazel is the goat. Well, What's the value of this ritual of symbolically placing the sins of the people on the scapegoat? The value, very simply, is God commanded it. And there is a phenomenal result. Look with me at chapter 16, verse 30. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And we, of course, see the the great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ here. That all the sins of our lives were poured on him. He became our scapegoat. He is our Azazel. The main lesson of Leviticus 11 through 15 is that life makes you unclean. Though we desperately need spiritual cleansing, there is no pretense of self righteousness that will hold water. That's the main lesson. You should read 11 through 15 hopeless about your own self righteousness and run to the cross and be thankful for the cleansing power of the cross. But I want to observe a couple more applications as well. So I think this is useful for us because we don't want to just uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, here. First, First idea, first application. Spiritual purity is a universal principle. Spiritual purity is a universal principle, and it doesn't matter what age of God's redemptive history that you live in. Now, we're not under that sort of purity system under the new covenant. We don't have a system for purity. But isn't it interesting that in the New Testament, we still see the principle being lived out? The same Paul who wrote in Romans 10, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The same Paul, Acts 21, 26 records, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. It's not that Paul was obligated to keep the law of purification he just understood the spirit of purification and that one did not just randomly go into the presence of God. He saw such incredible application to this law that he chose voluntarily to keep going by it. He was not under the law. He's under the new covenant, but he wanted to be pure before the Lord in his heart. And in fact, Paul gave the reason in Romans seven twenty two. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That technically speaking, no, he wasn't under the laws of purification, but in his heart, he wanted to be pure. He's not obligated, but he delights in what purity stands for. How about what James tells us about drawing near to God, drawing near to him who is holy. James 4 verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What is that? That's the idea of becoming spiritually ready to meet God. I have unconfessed sin. That makes me unclean. I need to confess my sin so that I may be clean. And as somebody who is clean, I may now meet with God. Now, there wasn't a law concerning this, but it was important enough to God that in 1 Corinthians 11, he was killing believers who refused to be pure when they came to the Lord's table. What does John tell us? 1 John three 2 and 3, and we love verse 2. We don't read verse 3 as often. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And we love that. But verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What does that mean? This is, this is the Christian working at purity and obedience in the, in the sense of I'm getting ready to meet Jesus Christ. Not to gain salvation, but to prepare to meet Jesus face to face. When my wife and I were were dating, she still does this to this day. When I was going to go pick her up, I would knock on the door and either she or her roommate would let me in. And usually, guess where she still was? She was in the bathroom. You want to know why? Because she wanted to look perfect. She wanted to prepare herself. I'm so glad that I didn't knock on the door and the door opened and she looked like she just rolled out of the bed saying, yeah, let's go out, that's fine. What would that tell me about what she thought of me? If you thought that Jesus Christ himself was going to be pulling up into our parking lot and coming in to just say hello to you, what would you do? Maybe look in the mirror, make sure you don't have something hanging off your chin. You would get ready. More importantly, you would prepare your heart because the king of kings and the lord of lords is sovereign and omnipotent and omniscient and he knows the thoughts of your heart oh boy okay i am mad at this person i better forgive him right now in my heart because jesus is going to ask me about it in five minutes first john 3 2 and 3 says if you love the lord if you're a christian get ready to meet him be ready purify yourself We can't complete our own sanctification, of course. We have a responsibility, though, to work at it by the power of the Spirit. Let me give you one more application, and then we'll be done. The pursuit of purity is not accomplished alone. The pursuit of purity is not accomplished alone. Did you notice that the context of the pursuit of purity is within the community of faith? For Israel, that was their national law. For us, it is in the church Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you catch that? As you see the day drawing near, as it gets closer to the time to meet Jesus face to face, let's encourage one another to love and good deeds all the more, all the more, all the more. Let's get ready. Boy, in our culture today, there's such a fear of commitment. Men are getting married older than they have in decades. Employees stay at one job for less time than they have in decades. And professing Christians are fearful of church membership more so than ever in church history. And yet full membership, full accountability to the local church is so key to the pursuit of purity. You cannot effectively lead the Christian life alone. You can't do it. Well, never in my ministry life have I ever had to say the words bat, unclean, or discharged so many times. So you know what these chapters make me yearn to do? To remember Israel's hope, which is our hope, God's promise for a new covenant. Would you indulge me in a spiritual washing, so to speak, because we've had to deal with bats, bugs, unclean, and impure. Just listen as I read from Ezekiel 36. Take it in. Drink the cool water of the new covenant. Just listen. Therefore, I say to the house of the Lord, the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel." Thus says the Lord God on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. Then they will say this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like a flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The new covenant makes it all clean. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for the cross of Christ, the precious blood of Jesus, which cleansed us from our sins. These chapters in Leviticus tell us how truly filthy we really are. That in a sinful world, living in sinful bodies among sinful people as sinners, we can't get away from our own filth, much less be holy before you. And so we rejoice in the cross of Christ. We rejoice that one day we will stand before you in fine linen, white and clean, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. And We look forward to that day, Lord. We We thank you so much that Our position before you right now is that of those who are perfectly justified, completely clean before you. In the record books of heaven, we are clean. And yet we continue to wallow in the mire of earth. And so we look forward to the day when that position is now consummated to be reality. Give us the courage, Lord, to live lives that are pure. Help us to purify ourselves. Help us to live lives not characterized by bitterness or unforgiveness or sin patterns that we refuse to deal with, but to live lives that become more and more pure, more and more clean as we wash our hands, as it were, in the blood of Christ. We praise you and thank you in his name.